Hello, I'm Dr. Gary Nation. Welcome to my study today, where we are going to be in the Gospel of John in one of the most important and exciting chapters in all of the Bible. This chapter, the third chapter of John, contains two of the most significant verses regarding our salvation and regarding the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So important are they and so meaty are these chapters that we're going to sp split this chapter in two and we'll talk about one part of it this week and we'll par talk about the next part of it the next time. And so let's get started. We're going to begin with the last few verses of chapter two because that really gives us the lead in to chapter 3. Just to let you know, there are no, in when the Bible was originally written, the Gospel writers did not write in chapter divisions and verse, uh, and split things up into verses. That was done hundreds of years later. And so we, uh, it's helpful to us to see how the Gospel writer himself divided this uh, and going into it. So, the end of chapter 2 contains these words. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So much in what we've just read. Only a few verses, and yet it's so rich and heavy with purpose and meaning. 
So let's look at it, and let's begin with just the story itself. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What this puts him in when it, when it says he's a ruler of the Jews, that phrase right there indicates that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, um, which was composed of both Sadducees, as this was the temple party of the priests who ran the temple and all of its environment, and the Pharisees. These were the people who were the real religious leaders of the society. Outside, they ran the synagogues and they ran the religious establishment outside of the temple. And, you know, when Jesus came into Jerusalem and came into the temple and began clearing out the marketplace from the temple, I think there were some Pharisees who were quite glad that he did that. I think Nicodemus was one of them. I think this is something he thought needed to be done for some time. This is my guess. I don't know this specifically. We're not told that. But the fact that he sought Jesus out indicates something. Now, he came to Jesus by night. Some think that this indicates some fault of Nicodemus and possibly cowardice and, and maybe too much pride. He didn't want to be seen uh, with Jesus during the daytime and so forth. And that may be true, but it also may just as well be true that this happened to be the best time to get with Jesus and actually have a private conversation with him. Because we know that whenever Jesus was out in public, he was surrounded by throngs. It was very difficult to, to have any private time. So this is a time Nicodemus seeks him out and is granted a private interview. This is something, this is a, an interesting concession on Jesus' part. He didn't often do this for this sort of thing, especially for the so-called important people. For the people that were unimportant in society, Jesus would go out of his way to make time for them. But he didn't always do that for, the, for those who had privilege. But this was a man of privilege. But Jesus brings him in and he grants him privilege. And Nicodemus comes into him and and I don't think his words are flattery. I think, I think his words are sincere. There is no indication of anything dishonest or disreputable in Nicodemus. Uh, on the contrary, it, it, he appears to be coming, not to try to trap him, but actually sincerely to come to find out something. And this is the way Jesus treats him. He treats him as a man who is there in all sincerity in order to learn from him. And, and, and Nicodemus comes in, he says, Rabbi. Now, the fact that he called Jesus Rabbi right there is an indication that Nicodemus has already made some concessions to Jesus in his own heart because Jesus had no credentials as a rabbi. I've got on my wall back here, you can see some diplomas. I've, got, I've been to school. I've, I've been taught. Jesus had not been to the rabbinical schools. Jesus had not studied under any rabbis. He, he did not have a rabbi degree. But Nicodemus, a man who with his position in society would be somebody who would value a man with a rabbi's degree, goes to Jesus who has no degree, but he calls him rabbi. This is an important thing. This tells you that he he's taking Jesus very seriously. He's taking his teachings very seriously. He really wants to hear what Jesus has to say. And he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now later on there would be Pharisees that would come and use phrases like that 
to try to test him and try to draw him into a false question. This is not Nicodemus. Nicodemus is being absolutely sincere. And Jesus blows right past all of that. He doesn't deal with them on that. He doesn't deal with them in preliminaries. Jesus, I think Jesus is probably rather tired at the end of the day, <laughs> personally. Again, I'm not told this in the scripture passage. This is just my impression of this. Uh, at the end of the day, it's at night. Jesus is, uh, would like to, you know, well, he's not in the mood to just chit-chat. He wants to get down to business, and Jesus immediately gets down to business and begins his statement with this, with the words, Amen, Amen, I say to you. The first time that, that those words are used in the Gospel of John or in chapter 1 when he speaks that way to Nathaniel. You know, this is a common way of, that Jesus had of speaking. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke show him using verily statements, uh, truly I say to you statements. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when, he, when Jesus says, truly I say to you, he says truly one time. Always when John quotes Jesus, John quotes Jesus as saying, truly, truly I say to you. I think there are, these are statements that made a particular impression upon John. And when he says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, he's making a very, very solemn declaration. And he's saying, you need to listen to what I'm saying. This is the doctrine that you need to begin to get a hold of. So what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Powerful statement. And it completely turns Nicodemus's world upside down in one sentence. Nicodemus, you see, is a good man. He is one of the best men in his society. And Jesus isn't going to dispute that. But he tells Nicodemus in that one sentence, I know what you're after. You're wanting to find out how to enter the kingdom of God. But unless you're born again, you're not even going to see the kingdom of God. That phrase, born again, also can be translated, born from above. Which does it mean? It means both. To be born again is to be born from above. To be born from above is to be born again because it is not the natural condition of your life. No one is born of the flesh and born from above at the same time. To be born of the flesh is to be born from below. To be born once is to be born from below from the earth, of the flesh. To be born from above is to be born again. This is a second birth. This is a new beginning. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what is the new birth? It is not merely, I do not believe, a conversion experience. Now, that is how, how the phrases come to be used uh, over the last couple of hundred years, actually. It's taken that period of time and those who began to see it that way uh, the new birth as a conversion experience that way 
had very good reasons for doing so. This actually began in the in the 17 uh, in in the late 16 and really the, in the 1700s, when uh, uh, the new birth was perceived to be a religious experience. Uh, and that came in as part of the revivals of the Great Awakening. Uh, this is uh, not... Why, why, am I, why do I say that to be born again is not the same thing as a conversion experience? If you've ever studied religions of the world, you will find that there are conversion experiences in every religious doctrine in the world. You will find people giving testimonies of conversion experiences in every religion in the world. As a matter of fact, I have read conversion experiences of persons into atheism. They have had the same kind of conversion experience into atheism that I have also read and heard of people having from atheism into Christianity. Conversion is a human experience. Conversion is an experience that takes place in the human soul when someone has fully committed himself to something that he's never been committed to before. And is changed. He has a change of direction in his life. Now, I'm not saying conversion is not necessary. It is necessary. Conversion, another word for conversion, it is the experience that goes along with a sudden repentance. But there are all kinds of conversion experiences, and you can't peg everything down into one thing. The new birth is something higher than a conversion experience, I believe. The new birth is something that God does. The new birth is something that God does. How can I be born again? Well, I don't know. What did you do to be born the first time? How did, what did you do to be born the first time? Or was that something that took place because of the actions of somebody else who brought your life into being? Keep that thought. Stay with me as we go through the rest of this passage. Watch. You'll see it come together. I, I do believe and I pray that it will, will take place. If you're puzzled right now, so was Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and to be born? I don't, think, uh, I don't think Nicodemus is meaning that completely literally. On the other hand, I don't think he's either just being sarcastic either. He's looking at what Jesus said and says, what you're talking about means a complete beginning. You're, you're, you're talking about starting all over again. And how do you do that? Especially how do you do that when you're a man of age? Listen. This is, it is an axiom of life that people don't change. Oh, people may change gradually. Oh, I mean, people's lives, they may evolve in their lives as to, as to what kind of person. But at the heart of their character, people don't change. If a person is a crook, he doesn't just change. If a person's a liar, he doesn't just change. If a person is an adulterer, he doesn't just change. If a person's a murderer, he doesn't just change. 
what do you do? You, you have to go back and into your mother's womb and be born again? How is that even possible? So Nicodemus is thinking in literal terms there, but he's looking at that from the point of view as how is it possible to have such a, such a dramatic change of your life? Again, this is not merely what I heard a preacher say one time, an experience so dynamic that it is like being born again. No, 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 no. It's not like being born again. It is to be born again. Nicodemus is letting the power of that sink into it, and Jesus follows up and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. All right, let's take that phrase, water and the Spirit. Once again, this is one of those phrases we look at and we, uh, we get all distracted and start asking the wrong questions and come up with the wrong answers, therefore. So, does that mean you have to be born of water and of the Spirit? And so, uh, so he just said you have to be born again. So you've got to have water, and you've got to have the Spirit, and so uh, some would say water then means baptism, and so you've got to be baptized in order to be born again. That's not what Jesus is saying. How do you know that's not what Jesus was saying? I know that's not what Jesus was saying was because baptism as a Christian sacrament did not exist when Nick, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus wouldn't have had the slightest idea what he was talking about. Well, what about John's baptism? John's baptism wasn't a baptism of rebirth. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, of conversion, if you will. Now, so some have started, some have uh, tried to come up with another idea for what that means. Oh, oh, what that means is the water is the water that accompanies the first birth. So you have to be born the first time and then be born the second time. Okay, now, what would be the point in saying that? Since if you are hearing these words, you are already born the first time. No, that's not what Jesus means either. So what does he mean when he says, unless you be born of water and the Spirit? There is a particular habit of Hebrew thinking and Hebrew speech and it comes out in their poetry and it comes out in their rhetoric and that is the use of parallelism. And there are different types of parallelism and one of the most powerful kinds of parallelism is synonymous parallelism where things are put together one thing after another in order to amplify each other and to amplify the truth. Jesus does this on different occasions, and particularly in the Gospel of John, it's a rhetorical device that's used by Jesus to explain the truth of what he's talking about. In John 4.24, which we're going to look at in a, uh, in a few weeks, he speaks of spirit and truth. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, some people go off and start talking, splitting up spirit and truth as if they're two different things. But when you look at it in context, you'll see that it's two aspects of the same thing. Uh, same, John 11.25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection and life are not two separate things. They are two aspects of the same thing. 
in John 14, 6, he puts three things together. I, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All three of those things, it's the same thing. It's three aspects of the same thing, not three different things. You see what I'm talking about? Now, does Jesus ever equate the Spirit, the Holy Spirit with water? Look at John 7, 38. Whoever believes in me, go ahead and turn to your, in your Bibles to John 7, 38 which we'll look at in more detail when we get to John chapter 7. But look at it right now with me. In John 7, 38, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, in quotes from Isaiah 59, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then the next verse he says, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. When Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, this is that Hebraic parallelism in which he is making a powerful statement. You must be born of water and the Spirit. He is talking about what the spiritual birth is, what it is to be born again. It is to be born again through the cleansing and the washing and the renewing of the life of the Holy Spirit in you. Then he goes on and explains, and his explanation makes that very clear. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh is natural, spirit is supernatural. Those two things, you cannot evolve from the flesh to the spirit. You cannot grow from the flesh to the spirit. You cannot personally make your own purpose and your own resolution to change from flesh into spirit. There must be an action from above that produces the life of the Holy Spirit in you. You must be born from above. You must be born again. He goes on to uh, use a parable. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this is something that doesn't come across in English, but it comes across both in Greek and in Hebrew and Aramaic. In Greek, the word for spirit is pneuma. In Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach. In Greek, the word for wind is pneuma. And in Hebrew, the word for wind is ruach. And in Greek, the word for breath is pneuma. And in Hebrew, the word for breath is ruach. Ruach, pneuma. Wind, breath, spirit. Jesus already has a parable at hand just in the very word spirit. So he uses the parable that is embedded in the word spirit itself. The wind blows where it wants to wind, where, where it wants to blow. You can't tell it where to blow. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But you feel its effects and you hear it. And that's the way it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, <laughs> What you may be thinking right now, how, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? He doesn't just say, are you a teacher of Israel? He says, are you the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel? 
Nicodemus was a man of great, he was, he was the high prophet, he was the dean of scholars, the dean of theologians in Israel. And he is trying desperately to keep up with what Jesus is having to say. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Here's the third truly, truly statement Jesus is making in this chapter. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't, you're not receiving our testimony. If I've told you, we, we testify of things we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. First of all, the idea of testimony. How do you know what's true about God? How do you know what's true about heaven? How do you know what's true about spiritual things? You, you can find out about earthly things by earthly investigation. That's why science works. You can find out about all kinds of things on earth through investigation. That's why science works. But science does not work on knowing God. Science has no way to connect with God. Science does deals with material things. Science is about flesh. And that which is of the flesh is flesh, and that which is of the spirit is spirit. So how do you know anything about spiritual things? Somebody has got to tell you who knows. And Jesus says, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, who's this we? Jesus is there with them, but who is the we? Does it have to do with his disciples? Well, what he's going to say next kind of eliminates his disciples from that. Because what he says next is, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Who can tell you what's going on in heaven? The Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I'm not telling you my opinion about things. I'm not guessing about these things. I'm not giving you a theory about any of this. I am telling you what is the truth. I am telling you something that I have direct knowledge of. He's, that's what the word testimony means. That's what the word testimony always means in the Gospel of John. Something that you have direct knowledge of, that you are bearing witness of to someone else. But who's the we? Turn to John chapter 5. Keep your place here, but turn to John chapter 5. Verse, verses 36 and 37. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of the Father that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. In John chapter 5, Jesus speaks of the witness that the Father is giving of him. I believe that the we that he's talking about is the witness of himself and the witness of God the Father. How did God the Father witness? 
Well, in the rest of that passage in chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in him they, they, they have, that you have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness about me. The witness of the Father is embedded in the witness of the Holy Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. So Jesus says, we bear witness to you. We tell you what we know, and you don't believe us. We are the, only, we are the ones who've been there who have seen it, and you don't believe our testimony. Again, our knowledge of God comes only through what God has revealed to us. He has revealed it to us through His words written by the prophets. He has revealed it to us in the world that He has created, but He has revealed it to us most specifically in His Son, the Word of God made flesh and dwelling among us. No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is John's first use of that phrase. In the... Um, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the phrase Son of Man is the most common way that Jesus refers to himself. We'll talk about that some other time. Uh, the meaning that what he meant by Son of Man. It doesn't merely mean human. It does mean that, but it doesn't merely mean that. But we'll talk about that more fully another time. I want to get to verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In the book of Numbers, there's a story about how one of the many times that the, uh, the children of Israel, the Israelite, young Israelite nation, having just been delivered from bondage out of Egypt, and brought over into the wilderness, and they're there at Mount Sinai, and they are... Uh, uh, they're waiting to, uh, for God to move and to show them what direction to go and they become restless and they become unbelieving and they, and, and they become, begin complaining about things and they begin to start biting and devouring one another. And so God sends vipers among them, poisonous snakes. They're, they're, they're just come into a, a whole uh, uh, infestation of them that begin to come to the people. And people are getting bitten, and some of them are getting sick and dying. And they, they cry out and they plead to Moses, Moses, tell God we're sorry, just pray for us, do something. And Moses goes to God and God tells him what to do. And so, and God's instructions, Moses takes... A piece of has a piece of brass that is heated and twisted into the form of a snake and puts it on top of the pole and raises that high pole up in the center of the camp and whoever looked up by faith at that at that brass snake on the pole would be healed. All it would take would be the look. Just enough faith to look and to see. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You will see, we're going to see, John's going to be using this, that phrase more, than, more times than this. 
And it's always, always in reference that Jesus is making reference to the manner in which he's going to die, which is what? To be lifted up on a cross. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The only time in the whole Gospel of John that the term kingdom of God is used is right here in verse 3. Uh, verse 3 and verse 5. That's, this is the only time the phrase kingdom of God is used. That's not, that's not John's phrase. That is very common in teaching in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John use, prefers to use another phrase. To him the kingdom of God is all wrapped up in this phrase to have eternal life. Eternal life literally means life of the age, the life of the age to come, the life of the kingdom age. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. To believe in him, to truly look to him and believe in him, is to be born again. We're going to stop there. Until next time. The next episode expands the discussion of God's love and why the Son came into the world. I hope you'll tune in for Nicodemus, Part 2. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.